0: You are listening to the Sun Grove podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Isn't it good to spend the first year week in church this morning and be with other like-minded people? Isn't that a good thing? Yeah, I love my church. Uh, and I don't just love my church because uh, we love this church. We love the church. And I love the head of the church, Jesus Christ. He is awesome. We love him, and it's because of him that we gather people from all different backgrounds, from all different forms of employment, from all different experiences. We gather together because we worship the Lord Jesus Christ, and and the church is not a building. The church is made up of people, and because the church is made up of people, the church can be messy, right? Because people get messy. We just do. We get messy and that's why things get messed up in your workplace and in your family sometimes and in relationships because people get messy. And if you think that you're trying to find the perfect church, don't. And you find it, don't join it, because you'll mess it up, right? Because people are messy. You'll just undo whatever they got going on there that none of the rest of us understand. And I want to be a part of a church that is real people, people who are messy, who are following the Lord Jesus Christ, that aren't following personality or anything else, but that they just follow the Lord. And what happens in our lives is that when life gets messy, we kind of get squeezed, So life gets messy. It starts to squeeze our life. And and what happens is when our life gets squeezed, when life gets messy, it begins to, it's like if I took an orange and I began to squeeze it, it begins to reveal whatever's on the inside. If I've got the peel on an orange, I can't see what's in there. But you start to squeeze that orange and it cracks and the juice comes out. You begin to see what's on the inside. And sometimes when life gets messy, there are particular experiences or uh, pressures in our life when you realize I need Jesus in a whole different way. I may have known Jesus as a a savior or or one who answers my prayer or listens to me or I have a head knowledge of belief in him. But then when life gets messy and it begins to squeeze you, you might realize I need to interact with that God of the universe on a whole different level because I need him right here, right now on my life, in the middle of my mess. And you might realize that there are times in your life when you say, hey, you know, I, I don't totally always love the church. I'm going to tell you this morning about a particular time. I did not love my particular local church. That I didn't love it. I was working in Long Beach, California, and I was uh, at Biola University. And while I was working there, I worked with junior hires. And let me just tell you, junior hires have this capacity to be incredibly disrespectful. Does anybody in here understand that? Okay, many, many in here understand that. I'll just be honest with you. There was one season that I that I ref'd junior high girls basketball. Scariest experience of my life. I mean, not just the junior high girls and just the nails and the hair and, you know, just all that was going on on the court, but the parents were scary, right? I was like, I would never do that again, but also, boys have this capacity to be disrespectful. And I was working with junior hires in Long Beach, and we kind of, where our church was located, uh, we had a lot of just regular church people who grew up in the church, church kids. H- how many of you in the room would say you were a church kid? You, you you grew up in some sort of church. All right, all over the room. How many of you would say you did not? You did not grow up in the church. That was not part of your family experience. All right. Well, in this youth group, we had a lot of kind of church kids, but then we started getting this influx of maybe like 40, just kids who were just neighborhood kids. They were wandering the streets. There wasn't a lot for them to do. They were kind of like pre-gang kids, and and they would all kind of come together, and they came to our youth, and we thought, this is great. We're reaching our community. We've got all these people from just like the regular street in addition to our church. They're going to hear the good news of Jesus, and and we quickly began to realize that they love, they love the amazing games that we play there. Just awesome recreation, amazing games. Um, They were mostly boys and and we had a lot of girls, and so they loved being there for all these different girls that were going on in the fun, but these kids were just raw and real, and so as uh, I'd be up speaking even, they would just stand up. If they disagreed, they'd just stand up and just tell you right there. So there would be time, you know, it'd be like I'd be teaching on something, this guy in this bag, his name was Mike. Mike would stand up, and he's kind of the leader of you know of all these little junior high boys, and he'd be like, you know what, I don't believe a pickin' thing that you're saying, and he didn't say the word pickin', you know. <laughs> say, so, okay, Mike, that's great, but hang in there, let me get to the end, keep listening, you know, and, and just hoping, and, and we had all these college leaders, I had about 20 college students, because it was a large youth group, 20 college students who would be sitting in among the students, and if students started getting disruptive, then we had kind of a discipline procedure, and it went like this, if, if you were disturbing the people around you, then, you know, a leader might look at you and say, hey, knock it off. And then the second step was, after if, they, if you continued being disruptive, then we would say, uh, the leader would go over there and say, hey, I warned you to knock it off. I'm telling you again, you need to settle down and listen up. Or I'm going to need to move you out of your seat to away from your friends, you know, to a new seat. Well, if they continue being disruptive, then the leader goes over there, moves them away from their seat to a different part of the room, different seat over here, and says as they're sitting them down, hey, if you continue being disruptive, then we're going to have to take, you know, me and another leader are going to have to kind of take you out and just have a talk with you in this common area, this public area at our church. And, uh, and then, of course, if the kid continued to act up, uh, you know, across the room from all their friends, still doing all this stuff that's distracting, then the two leaders would, would take that, that kid outside, and they go in this public area, and the kid is just ready for like, I mean, you just see the body like, just shut down and ready for like a lecture, right? They're ready to just get lectured at. And what would happen is we would do a technique called disarming. And it didn't mean we pat them down for weapons, although it might not have been a bad idea. But, but what we would do is we would disarm them. We would just say, hey, you know, man, is everything going on all right at home? It, was it like a rough day at school today? Because, like, the way you're acting up in there is, is kind of different than you normally are. And that wasn't always true. But, you know. <laughs> We would start to disarm them. And you just watch. You just watch the body language and the, the defensiveness just kind of come down. And you begin to engage with them. And you begin to talk to them. And, and, and then, of course, you actually have a good conversation. So then you prep them. Okay, we're going to go back in there. And you just watch the kid. They've been like, we've just actually made a connection. But now we've got to go back in the classroom. And i got to posture in front of all my friends, right? Because they all know I got taken out. Taken out of the room. So you just watch them, like, a uh, posture. And they come back in. They're like, yeah! You know, they're just, you know, and they sit down in their seat again. And you just roll your eyes like, oh, brother, right? But that's what we would do. We would just walk through this procedure with them. Well, there's this guy named Mike, and he would stand up and, like I mentioned, just say what he thought. And uh, my younger brother, Donnie, was at school at the same time, and so he was one of my volunteers. So Donnie and another leader, they, they warn him. They warn him that they'll move him. They move him. They warn him that they'll take him outside. He keeps acting up. They take him outside. They do the whole disarming thing. They actually have a good conversation. They come back in. He's all posturing. Woo! Well, by the time that he left and walked home with like his 40 friends, the story grew. And he began to tell them, you know what? One of those leaders, the brother of the main leader, that guy Donnie, he punched me. (laughs) And then by the time they got home, they were all like in an uproar. They were like, you know, it was like, it was like the Cincinnati Bengals playing the Steelers. (laughs) And it was just, it was just a mess, right? So they start, they start getting all just, you know, uh, all, well, then the, the dad and the older brother hear about this. So the next week, When I come back to youth group, I'm getting prepped, getting ready to go, and one of my leaders comes running up to me and says, Dave, Mike's dad and this older brother who looks like an MMA fighter, they are down there going, who hit my kid? Who punched my brother? And so I'm like, oh, so we hustle down in there. I identify the dad right away. I come up to him, I'm like, hey, hey, uh, you know, I said, I think I know the situation you're talking about. Can you and I just step out and have a conversation? And he looks at me and he says, how would you like me to hit you with a lead pipe? Sir, no one's hitting anyone with a lead pipe. I'm just wondering if you, I think I know the situation going with me. So I kind of pull him out in this common area, public area, and we start doing disarming. And pretty soon all his defensiveness comes down. I'm like, this is the information we've had to try to contact you. Is that the correct number that your son has given us? It's not, can I get that right? And pretty soon he's all disarmed. He's all like, oh, okay, cool. You know, so we, like, it wasn't what he, what he thought. Well, his son, the, this MMA fighter guy, is still in the room going, who hit, Who hit my brother? And all these little gangsta boys point at my brother Donnie. And Donnie's sitting down on the front of the stage with like his legs hanging over there. And they point him out and the guy comes up like in Donnie's face and Donnie looks over at my college roommate, who's a third degree black belt and is in the LAPD program, uh, like police program to become uh, the academy to become a, a police officer. So Donnie just looks at the guy, rolls his eyes a little bit and goes, Dave, come here. And right when he does that, this guy sucker punches my brother right in the face knocks him backward on the stage, and all purgatory breaks loose. (laughs) These, like, 40 little junior hires jump on the stage on my brother, and our staff is there, so we have, like, college guys grabbing junior hires and, like, just throwing them out of the pile, you know, (laughs) just chucking them every way, and they're just moving these guys, and these, like, little dudes are, like, throwing punches, and they're just, like, it's all, like, this mayhem. Well, the dad and I see this, like, like, my brother get punched, and they see this go down. Well now, my roommate, college roommate Dave, is in like his third degree black belt stance, and he's about to like throw an elbow to this guy's nose and just lay him out. So we come running in, and I'm grabbing kids and tossing them, and, and so the dad comes up behind his, his son, who's really big and bobby, grabs his son, he backs him up like this just to keep him out of that. Well, Dave, my roommate, then goes and calls the cop and says, officer needs assistance. <laughs> well let me tell you, instantly, The entire Long Beach Police Department shows up at Youth Group. Instant revival, just unbelievable, right? (laughs) Amen. The Lord is moving here, you know. And and, you know, and so finally they they, like we they finally get all settled out and they interview and they do their whole thing and they come up to me at the end and they're like, "Do you want to press charges?" I'm thinking, "Heck yeah," you know. My brother, your blood is thicker than water, right? And you just got punched. And yet we're trying to reach out to these kids. And so what do you do in that kind of situation? And I'm just conflicted with that. And literally, I mean, I just gotta be honest with you, parents are coming up to me afterwards. and like, what happened? And they're like, is my kid safe at youth group? And I'm like, no, no, they're not. They're not safe at youth group right now. It's crazy. Thank you for understanding. I'm thinking, I don't know if I have a job. I mean, I'm just, you know, it's just, it's a mess, right? I didn't love my church, and that, that season, you could just feel it building, and, and I, I just remember driving over, even, you know, I was like, why do I do this? Why, I don't even want to go tonight, why am I doing this for the sake, you know, I have this big idea, I want, to, I want to help them while they're young, so they don't go through so much, you know, self-inflicted hurt and misunderstanding, but they know Jesus young, and then they can walk through the pressures of life. I'm like, why do I do this? And the cop just looks at me and says, do you want to press charges? I'll tell you what happened in a little bit. There's a church that was getting squeezed. The church was located in Colossae. It was getting squeezed by the pressure of the culture. It was getting squeezed by false teaching that was going on. And Paul from prison where he's under a pressure situation begins writing to the church at Colossae. And we looked at it a little bit last week, but open your Bible with me, if you will. The Colossians... Chapter 1, beginning with verse 15. So the Son, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. When you and I get squeezed, when life pressures hit us, we need to understand who are we worshiping? Who is Jesus? Who is this that we, we say, you know, you're God, and, and how do I worship you? And when life gets squeezed, how do I need to know Jesus deeper? I, I don't know, sometimes maybe in your life and my life, it's like when you're going through Taco Bell, and you're like, you know what, I'm hungry, and the standard taco will not work. I need to order more. I need something more. I need, I need like the, I need to supreme size of the taco, right? So you order the supreme size because the regular isn't going to do. And sometimes in your life and my life, where you've been with God isn't going to do. And as God matures the church, sometimes it gets squeezed. Because not because we need more of the Holy Spirit. We've got all of the Holy Spirit inside that we need, but we have not been walking with the Spirit, we have not been tapping into the power of the Spirit. And so we need to begin to say, God, I need to know you n- in a new way. God, I need to know you differently. I need to know how to exercise my faith. I need to know how to become fruitful in my life. And so we need to understand who Jesus Christ is. And maybe today you're realizing it's time to supreme size your order of Christ. That because life is squeezing you in a certain way, you need to understand Jesus differently. And so in order to do that, we're going to talk about the supremacy of Christ. And if you're taking notes today on your outline, number one says he is the image of God. The word image there doesn't mean like we're created in the image of God, but we're not God. But Jesus, this word is different. It's saying that he is created in the image of God, the exact likeness and manifestation, that the nature and the being of God are perfectly revealed in Jesus. He is the image of God, not just created in the image of God. He is the image of God. Second, he is first over all creation. First over all creation. And some people misunderstand this. They think, well... You know, so then there must have been like God, and then sometime in history he created Jesus, and the Holy Spirit came along there somewhere. And we think of it like a timeline, but it's not. Please understand, God is one in essence. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Always existed, has always been. That has been that's what God is. In fact, it says He is the first over all creation. It's not the timeline, but it refers to his position, his priority, his supremacy, his authority, that he is number one, he is first over all creation. That Jesus is not created is shown in verse 16, because it says all things were created through him, which means that the creation of the world, that the creation of the universe, that he was active and involved, the power that it was, it was God creating. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all three were present if you read Genesis chapter 1 at creation. Have always been. he's not the firstborn like he was born, but he is first over all creation. Paul goes on and says this in Colossians verse 17 1, 17 says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together and he is at the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. from accusation. Let me just pause right there for a minute. Think about that for a minute. Free from accusation. You've been presented holy in God's sight, free from accusation. Everyone say free from accusation. Free. Now tell your neighbor, free from accusation, and say it with a smile. <laughs> That's good news, right? Because sometimes you know the person sitting next to you is like, I got a list. Maybe God says you're free from accusation, but I got a list, you know. And our world says they got a list. And then we have a list of ways we're accusing, but the accusation comes from the evil one who wants to steal and kill and destroy your family, your life, your relationship with God and make you settle for far, far less. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, we have the opportunity to be freed from accusation. It goes on and says this, verse 23, if you continue in your faith, establish and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So let me help you understand the beginning of that verse, though, just real quick. Uh, Verse 23 says, if you continue in your faith... Now we would read this in English and think that well God did all this but it's only good if kind of like an if then clause but that's not the nature of this in scripture the nature of this is in scripture is saying God accomplishes on the cross and so it would almost say like a better way to say it would be so naturally you're going to go ahead and follow through on this anyway it's it's not that you God did all this and you're going to fall out of favor with God or you're going to lose your salvation It's saying because God did all this stuff, obviously you're going to continue in walking with him because of your faith. Number three on your outline is this, that Jesus is head of the church. Jesus is head of the church, which means he's the leader. He's the the originator of the church. He's the one who came up with it. He's the one who paved the road for the church to actually work and for the church to be in existence. He is the leader of it. Jesus says, I love my church. He said, I love it so much I died for my church. I love my church. I'm the source of the church. I'm the originator. I'm the leader of the church. And there are so many people in our world right now who are like, you know, I love Jesus. I just don't like organized religion. And let me tell you something, neither do I. I don't like organized religion. I like gathering together with a bunch of messy people who say, Jesus, it's all about him, and we're going to worship him, and we're going to love him. And we come together to lift him up and worship him and be his ambassadors in the world. I'm not about religiosity. I'm about relationship with Christ, that we know him, that he is the vine and we're the branches, and we got to stay connected to that. That's what we do when we come together, when we gather like this. And that's why it's beautiful. The church is the right place. Where people come seeking, is this even what I want to believe? Is this even what I'm looking at? If you're our guest here today, you're in absolutely the right place. It's also the place where people have walked with Jesus a long time. It's where people come from every source of economy, every source of race. It's the one place we all come together and say, Jesus is the head. He is God. He alone is Lord. He's the supremacy. He's the head of the church. But I also hear in our culture people who say this, well, I love Jesus. I I just can't stand the church. And you know what? That's a conflict of belief. Because you can't, that's like saying, Jesus, Jesus I, Jesus, I love you. I just hate your wife. That's what it's like saying. And Jesus is going, not only is the church the bride of Christ, but I'm the leader of it. I'm the head of that. And there's a conflict. And people are like, you know, God, I, I just want to love you. And I want it to be a very personal thing and just love you alone. But the truth is, Jesus is saying, if you love me, you become part of my church you become part of my ambassadors in the world it is a common gathering it's what i the institution he's created to carry out his kingdom on earth until he returns so you can't say i love jesus i just hate church it just doesn't work that way we say i love the church number four jesus is firstborn from the dead Verse 18 talks about him being the firstborn from the dead. And what that means there is this, that he was the first to come back from the dead in true resurrection, never to die again. Did you catch that? That he comes back from the dead. He wasn't the first to rise from the dead. There were some of those situations in the Old Testament before Christ's arrival. But that Christ is the firstborn to come back to true resurrection, never to die again. Anybody who died and got rose from the dead had to die again. We looked a couple weeks ago about near-death experiences. Nobody interviewed those people. But Jesus possesses this new and eternal life that his people, by virtue of their union with him, now share. He is entitled to be the supremacy. He is almighty God. Paul said it this way about Christ being the firstborn from the dead. In 1 Corinthians, he writes to a church he's very familiar with, and he says this, in chapter 15, verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What's he saying? First fruits, it's an agricultural society. They're saying he's the firstborn from the dead. Falling asleep is something that they would talk about in those days, in that age, as ones who had passed away, who had died. And Jesus is the firstborn. Number five on your outline is this. He is the fullness of God. The fullness of God in verse 19, it talks about Jesus being the very fullness of God. In Greek, the word is palorma. And what, what that word actually means is this. It means complete totality, all that God is. When it talks about the fullness, it's everything about God is carried and in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God himself. Jesus is God And then number six, he is the reconciler of all things. Isn't reconciliation a good thing? Isn't it good when there's differences and they come together to find peace and harmony in relationship? Isn't that a good thing when things are reconciled and then trust gets built and you see that happen? In our culture, in so many ways, we're watching and waiting. We're hungering for reconciliation. We're hungering for racial reconciliation. We're hungering for economic reconciliation. We're hungering for a day when there's a kingdom that will never perish or spoil or fade. We're waiting for our bodies to reconcile with our minds because we're getting older and our bodies are aging, but our minds feel like they're 18 years old still. We're waiting for reconciliation. When it happens, it's a beautiful thing. Jesus, reconciler of all things. What does that mean? He makes things new. There are things in God's, in your life that God wants to make new. He wants to come along and help you where there's been enmity, where there's been division. He wants to make things new, but he starts in your relationship with him, and he works out from there, and God works in those ways. He's a reconciler of all things, so he shares, well, how did that happen? It happened through Jesus. And his shed blood, his suffering, and through his blood being shed, that where we were formerly enemies of God, he now has reconciled. He's made the way for you and I to have forgiveness of our sin and be presented before God wholly without accusation. He's a reconciler. And i put a long kind of fill in the Blake sentence here, and I want you to catch this for a minute, because you've got to realize that Christ's death in our place is sufficient to save all. What does that mean? It's powerful enough. Christ's death on the cross could save everyone. It's sufficient to, but it's only efficient for those who receive him. Because of free will, God gives us choice. He says, my death is powerful enough. It's strong enough to save everybody. But because I give people free choice, it's only going to work. It's only efficient for those who receive Jesus Christ as Lord. And then you and I become proficient in Christ when you proclaim him. That you and I begin to walk in Christ and share the good news that Paul's talking about right here when our life and our words begin to proclaim him. Not that we're perfect people and we're trying to say, look at my perfection, but instead of saying, look at me, I'm a messy person saved by Christ and because of that I'm declared holy and I'm presented without accusation. That is a beautiful thing. There's a world dying for hope who look at the church sometimes, or believers sometimes, and they think that we're accusing. The truth is, we have the opportunity to share and proclaim the good news of Christ. For some of you in your life right now, this year, it is time to supreme size your order of Christ. Well, how do you do that? How do you supreme size your order of Christ? There are no shortcuts to spiritual growth. And let me just be straight up honest with you. Just in many, many years in my own life, my own walk with Jesus, many, many years in ministry, there are no shortcuts to having a close walk with Christ. And the way that that happens is for you to have daily time reading his word, praying to him, time alone with Jesus. There's no shortcut to it. What happens is we try to think that we can manage it on our own and have a belief in God, and we can go to church and feel better for that day or that week, you know, a little bit, and then we go back to get fed again next week, but we're, we're dry and dusty throughout the whole week. We're not really productive. There's no fruit being born in our lives. We say, why is that? Well, Well, maybe because what happens when the problems of life come along and squeeze you, you realize that you have not actually been walking with Jesus. You've not been in relationship walking with him. You've not been nurturing that walk with Jesus at all. And I'm going to say something that to some may sound very controversial just because of your routine or your practice. But I truly believe, based on what I see in scripture and what I've practiced in my own life, that there's no better answer to that than giving God the first of your day and early now listen, I said both first and early. Now early for some of you may not be early for others of you because of the time you start work or anything else, but here's what I'm saying. You and I need to get up and get out of time and start our day off with the Lord that we honor him with the first. It sets the course of our day. It certainly sets the course of our reactions to our day. Doesn't it? So you get up and you spend time with the Lord and then you go to youth group and you have to call the police department and all the police show up and you're like, how am I gonna respond to this in a godly manner? Because if I don't, I'm going to talk to God and complain to Him how bad my day was. At the end of the day, some of you will say, "I need to supreme size my order of Christ," which means I need to get in the Word. I need to get in it early. I need to talk to somebody. I need a brotherhood or sisterhood around me who will push me on and make sure that I'm doing it. Who will walk with me and help me understand where do I start in the Bible? How do I? Where do I read? What does that look like? And you begin to walk with them. Second thing is lock in. Love your church. Love the church of Jesus Christ. Get out of your comfort zone and serve the church of which he is the head, his bride. Serve it. Set the date. Let me be honest with you real quick just around the room. That seat that you're sitting in, it's not your seat. It's the seat of somebody who's not here yet. Just like there was a time when maybe you weren't here and that seat was being prepared for you and you being here. But there are many who need the hope of Jesus Christ. And that seat here is provided so that we can bring people in here and begin to set the date for them to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. See, what happens when you and I are not connected to the Lord, we try to be productive, but we're like a dry stick. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And apart from me, if you're cut off from me, you bear no fruit. You and I, we dry out spiritually. So, we need to connect to the vine. What's the nourisher of the vine? It's his word. This is God's message to us. What's our communication and fellowship? That as we abide, we talk to him, we walk with him. Throughout our day, we have communication with him, and we are nurtured. <coughs> Maybe time to supreme size your order of Christ. Paul goes on and says this Colossians 1, verse 24. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, not just the Jewish people, right, among all of us, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he is the one that we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Now, hear me carefully. There are some people who proclaim to be believers who think that when the Bible describes Christ taking our afflictions on the cross, that it means you and I are not gonna to have to endure hardship. They'll say that, well, Christ nailed everything to the cross and, and all our afflictions and all our hardships, so you're not gonna suffer. But but here's Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. Paul, this one who used to persecute the church who now is serving the church and he is saying this in verse 24, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of this body of the church. Now, what is it, I have to ask you a question. Is Paul saying that Christ's sacrifice on the cross wasn't sufficient? So he's got to have some afflictions in his body he's got to suffer to make up The difference. That's not what Paul is saying at all. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to save all. It's efficient for those who receive him, and you and I become proficient in Christ when you proclaim him. But what Paul is saying is this He's saying, listen, it's not that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was somehow lacking. Rather, sacrificing for the sake of the church didn't end with Christ's suffering on the cross that it's our privilege to share in his sufferings for the sake of maturing the church. So when people are persecuted religiously for their faith in Jesus Christ, they are being persecuted and they're going to experience suffering. They do that as God is squeezing us, as life comes along and squeezes you. God allows that as part of our suffering to share in his sufferings as he matures us and he matures the church. See, some people would say this, well, other people believe, well, if I gave my life to Christ, then I should just have it easy. Like all that stuff goes away. And the mature believer knows that when you and I experience suffering, whether it's in your health or it's in relationships or it's in your life, as as life squeezes you, whatever that source of squeezing is, that God uses those things because they're part of life to also mature us, to realize that we need to supersize our life with Christ this year. So my brother gets punched. He's laying down on the stage. And, you know, all that stuff happens. And then the cops come and say, hey, uh, do you want to press charges? And I have that instant conflict in my head. We're supposed to reach out to these people with the hope of Jesus Christ, but man, I can't have them punching my brother every weekend. Well, maybe, but I really can't, right? So we thought through it and said, no. No. No, we won't press charges, but we've got to do something. So what do we do? I mean, honestly, many times just going on that night, I would just ask, why am I doing this? But a lot of times we endure hard experiences so that we can mature and we can also mature the church. Do You ever do that? Sometimes in our culture, we hear this message. We hear the message that hard must be bad. But sometimes hard is just hard. It's not bad. In fact, many good disciplines, many high culture disciplines require a lot of hard, don't they? Hard's not bad. Sometimes hard is just hard. But hard can result in good when you and I give ourselves to that process. And we don't just say, God, just rescue me out of it. I couldn't just be like, God, bless me with the ability to play piano. I just promise I don't ever want to suffer through practice. Would never happen, right? It would never, ever happen. But there are times that we suffer And God uses it to mature the church. So we drew boundaries with all these kids. We said to them, the very next week when they showed up, we gathered them all together. We took them to a separate room. All these little junior hires, about 40 of them, we said, you, as of right now, tonight, you may not come back to this group or to this church unless you bring one of your parents next week And you come back with them, and if your parent can't make it, you come with one of these other kids. But we would love, and we'll sit down and get correct information, contact information. We'll talk with you and your parents about what we expect while you're here, and we would love to have you here. Well, about half of them said, see you later. And about a year later, when they entered high school there in Long Beach, they made national news by violating girls and having a point system by which they would gauge and compete with one another as these little boys would violate girls in the public school. But about 20 of them said, all right, we'll bring back, we'll bring our parents. And they did, and we came together, we talked through what that would look like. One of them was Mike, brought his dad back. He didn't hit me with a lead pipe. It was good. And we walked through about the last two months before I graduated. The night that I was going to be my last Wednesday night at the youth group, and then I was moving to Denver, Colorado to go to grad school for seminary, And, uh, and it was that last night and gave the gospel. Mike is there. And then that last night, um, I had the privilege of kneeling with him on the same stage where his older brother punched my brother as he accepted Jesus Christ into his heart. Isn't that good news? You don't think there? in that moment you go, oh, it's all worth it. Now, the night that I had to call the cops, it wasn't. But let me tell you, we endure the hardship. We go through hard experiences because of the value. What are we working toward here? And let me tell you, years have gone by. And I pray that Mike loves his church and that he's been serving his church and that he's been walking with Jesus over all these years and that he would say because of Jesus and his goodness, he elevates Christ as the supremacy in his life because he understood the grace of God in his life. And, and wouldn't that be a beautiful thing to someday have a reunion with that guy? And, and it's been years, and you know that was before even cell phones. So once you, lose, you go away, you lose all contact, right? Number seven, we endure affliction and proclaim Christ through it so that the church matures. In verse 28, Paul says, that's what I'm all about. That's why I do what I do. And he says it this way in verse 28. He says, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And and he just says, this is my philosophy of ministry. Paul says, this is why I'm in prison right now. He says, this is why I do what I do. It's why I endure affliction and hardship. It's why I go through hard so that I can go mature and I can mature the body as well. He says, this is why I do. So he says a couple things. He says, basically, so that we proclaim Jesus. We admonish and we teach. We understand proclamation. We understand teaching. But you say, what in the world is admonishing? Admonishing, these are all, by the way, present tense, which means we are constantly proclaiming, we are constantly admonishing, we are constantly teaching, and admonishing means warning people of the consequences of disobeying God and the natural consequences of sin. This is where I come along as your pastor and I say, please, as your pastor, as one who loves you, please, Please don't start certain behaviors that our culture says everybody should start at certain ages. Please don't start that because if you don't start that, then you don't have to stop it later on. You'll save yourself a world of grief. It's when I come along and say, please, please do not get comfortable. Do not get comfortable in your walk with Christ. Do not get comfortable in the seat you sit in. Do not get comfortable in your life, but continue to press in and pursue and renew again your desire and drive to be with Christ because if you do, you will be productive and fruitful in your life. It's why I come along as a pastor. I say, please, please don't let the behaviors that are controlling you go on to control you forever. Repent, turn back, turn back toward the Lord and walk with him. That's what admonishing is. Because sin is real, and consequences are great. I would love to meet that guy Mike someday. I'd love to have that reunion. And isn't it true about reunions that the best reunions are not just when your class reunion comes around, but the best reunions are when you get back together with people that you served with, or that you fought with, or that you battled on the field of manly combat or or athletic prowess with, or the people that you, you cried with and you laughed with, and that you walked through the tough things of life with, whether they were in school or in your workplace, people that you planned with, people that you wrote with, that you dreamed with, that you did great events with, those are great. But this is more true when you and I, when we have served together, when we've suffered together, when we've fought battles and we've strengthened Christ's body, the church, reunions are great. But we look forward to the great reunion, that moment where we, the church, who have suffered, who have labored, who have been poured out like a drink offering, that we are just poured out, we're not used up, we are poured out as if like our life was wasted, not for my kingdom, God, but for your kingdom, that we who have been poured out. Get to see the invisible God face-to-face and say, God, it was all about you all along. All that stuff I put in it makes so important isn't. And God, has always been all about you. And you were the one who reconciled me and all my mess through your blood. I am presented to you wholly without accusation. What a great reunion that will be. That we see the one who has been powerful in us we just felt weak. What a beautiful moment that will be. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment, concentrating on your own life? Many of you in this room, you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That point came where you said, I choose Jesus, and you made the decision for him. But I want you just right now to gauge, God, what do I need to do differently and walk with you with intentionality? Maybe it's getting up earlier. Maybe it's, again, getting in his word on a regular basis, building a routine that becomes a habit, a practice, a productive part of your life. But there are others in the room where you realize, I've never understood that Jesus gave his life for me. And today's the day I need to ask him for the forgiveness of my sin and that I could be made a new creation. I could be presented to God wholly, without accusation. And if that's you today, if you'd like to say yes to Jesus, the Supreme One, then simply pray a prayer like this right where you're seated, you pray it. Just silently, God hears you in your heart, but you pray this prayer, say this. Jesus, today I give you me. I ask you to come into my life. Make me a new creation. I believe that you are God, that you died on the cross for my sin that you were buried, and you rose to new life. And so today, Jesus, I just humbly give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.